Okay, let's get that music turned off. Hey, everybody, <laughs> just get it off. <laughs> Hi, welcome to uh, Critical Q&A. Yep, here we are. Okay, hey, everybody. Let's uh, get over to getting the comments on here. I'm just sort of jumping right into this. Um, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Critical Q&A, uh, the live stream. This is episode, I think, number 351. A lot of questions answered, a lot of water going under the bridge, blah, blah, blah. So good morning, everybody. My um, Melissa sometimes joins us for critical Q&A and sometimes does not. This week, she's decided uh, to stay home or rather, well, I'm home, but, you know, to stay uh, out of it. She wanted to sleep in this this uh, weekend because we had a, a pretty late night last night and good times on that. Um, okay, so uh, if anybody wants to confirm in the chat for me that uh, the chat is working, that would be awesome. And let's see, in terms of uh, quick updates for, uh, ah, there we go. Hello. Okay, good. Just want to make sure the comments were actually working. Uh, okay, so as far as um, the endless updates on the end of endless <laughs> um, uh, master's thesis, today is the day. Today is it. It gets turned in tonight. Uh, so after this show today, I'll be having a, a final conversation review with my um, professor, and uh, we'll go over the final, my, my advisor on this thing, we'll go over the last little bits, and I will um, uh, finish writing the last bits and turn it in. So that is happening uh, today. There we are. Hey, everybody. Uh, there's my critics. Okay, good. Um, Yes. Okay. So, uh, as folks are rolling into the to the chat here, just giving a little update on uh, where things stand. So today is it. Today is the final day, and then my life gets to move on past this. Um, and I'm and I've got so many things. I've already got interviews lined up for this week, and um, that uh, podcast that I did with Rachel on emotional needs. And if you guys have not checked that out, I really recommend checking that out. I think that little conversation I had with Rachel was one of the best we've done in a while. Uh, one, of, one of the really good stuff. So I hope you guys will uh, will check that out. And there will be more on that. We've got a whole uh, list of... Um, I, I love my little post-it notes. I always keep my little post-it notes here. Anyway, yeah, I've got all the, all the emotional needs of human beings right here on this post-it note. Uh, and, uh, and we've been covering these. We covered the first two out of nine of those things. And it's very enlightening because it's not a matter of there being something. The thing I'm, I'm really interested in this is um, uh, that um, uh, it's so interesting. These emotional needs are not something that's wrong with you. You know, we're not talking about pathology here. We're talking about just day-to-day -day normal, this is us, this is who we are as human beings. And it's quite eye-opening when you realize that we have needs, we have things about us that really don't make a lot of sense. They're not fully, like, they're rational, they make sense, but the things we do in order to fulfill those needs doesn't always make sense. But the fact that we have to fulfill them or die trying is what's so interesting. I'm fascinated by that. And um, 
anyway, as far as Henny, thank you for that question. And yes, I am actually now at the point where I'm really pumped about this thesis that I've written, this this research that I've done. I'm very excited about it. And um, I think I've described to you guys, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, I think I've described to you why it is that this that the work I've done is kind of new and interesting and different um, than what has been done before. I don't want to go on and on and prattle on and on about the work I've done because I feel a little, um, I'm so into it and I've been working on it for months and it's original work and it's my work and, and the results of it I'm quite excited about. Um, but it's it's kind of a dry thesis, you know, as far as that goes. It's not like my book or the or the more popular kind of work writing that I do. So um, so I don't know if you guys are going to want to you know read it or not. I'll put it up after I get after I get it graded. I will. Um, uh, yeah, ten more years in the RPF. Right on. Um, Anyway, after I get it graded, I will put it up on my blog. I'm not going to post it till after my professors and, and, and graders and stuff look at it. But, um, but I am actually quite, uh, quite excited about it. Oh, thank you, Henny, for that uh, conversation with Rachel. It was extremely informative. Yes, good. Uh, that, is, that is the point of that. So anyway, good times there. And um, Anyway, one thing, I, the, I'll just say this on the thesis, and then we can get on with maybe some of your other questions. Um, no one's done research like I've done on this. Um, I, I have two things that I'm bringing to the table with the work that I'm doing on cults and Scientology and coercive control that, that other people aren't, um, that I get to say I'm doing, right? Uh one is that I think I'm the first, I, I believe I am the first ex-Scientologist to go get a master's level, postgraduate research level work um, on the subject of Scientology. A lot, a lot, a lot of people have written about Scientology after they came out of Scientology, and, and there is some amazingly good work out there. But nobody that I know of has left Scientology and gone on to do academic publications and research and publications on Scientology. So I think that's new. And um, the specific what I'm doing, it's kind of like anti-apologetics. And by that I mean, I have, um, you guys have heard me talk at length about these new religious movement scholars, these people who are in academia, religious studies scholars, sociologists, faux pretend sociologists, um, and uh, psychologists. Uh, some psychologists have gotten into this as well, but for the most part, it's been religious studies guys and sociology guys. And these guys will approach Scientology from the viewpoint that it is a new religious movement, an exciting, new, different, you know, 20th century uh, <clears throat> um, manifestation of a new religious movement, uh, rather than look at it through a more critical lens as a destructive cult. They don't believe that brainwashing is a thing or thought reform is real. Uh, these are people who are not psych majors for the most part, don't really get into the psychology of things much. And so approaching it from that point of view of religious studies, they go, hey, this is just another religion. So it's a little baby religion. You know, this is a, let's study this, right? And then they justify, rationalize, talk about it. 
And I'm okay with that, except for the fact that they tend to make excuses for or ignore the abuses that occur in Scientology and other dissimilar destructive cults. They just write that off. They go, oh, no, that's fine. No big deal. What's the problem? And you and I know that there are huge problems with that, that Scientology is rapacious, that they have a vulture culture. It's a surveillance culture. It's a confession culture. There's a lot going on in Scientology that's kind of unsavory, and they don't go into that or analyze that. And so... Um, and they, and they tend to do it from a rather opinionated point of view. They don't do it from a, here's the material, here's what it says, and therefore, here are the conclusions we can draw from that. And that tends to be how um, religious scholarship is done, is you really dive into the materials and you interpret and look at what they're about and what they say. And that's like apologetics or counter-apologetics. But that's not what these guys, these new religious movement scholars tend to do. They tend to editorialize. And so what I'm doing is rather than fight that, that get continue the cult war by countering their work with more opinion-based research or, or, sorry, work that I would do, instead, like a, like a lot of the writing that I've done about them, instead of doing that, I'm doing research into what Hubbard actually said and showing how he creates a framework of coercive control. It's, it, it's an actual argument. It's not just an opinion. So uh, that kind of work has not really been done on Scientology. So that's me. That's the end of me trumpeting myself on that. But that's what I've been working on. And that's why what I'm bringing to this, to this is, is exciting for me and something that nobody else has done before. And that's um, at least not from an ex, as an ex-Scientologist. There have been a couple of scholars, uh, Hugh Urban, um, uh, Stephen Kent in, in Canada, for example, who have done this kind of analytical work and research on Scientology. But they're not former members. They've never had anything to do with it before. And their analysis is great, but one thing I found in doing this work is that having the viewpoint of being an ex-Scientologist gives you a lot more depth in looking into how deep the rabbit hole goes. Because for somebody who's never been involved in Scientology before, they don't necessarily get all the levels of loaded language and nuance of belief that exist in Scientology. And so they don't necessarily understand everything Hubbard is saying or appreciate what he's saying at the depth and level that a Scientologist would. So, um, so that's kind of fun for that, and that's what I'll, that's what I'll say about that. Um, okay, so this is not a call-in show, but if you have questions for me, throw them in the chat as you are doing, Robert, and I will um, start answering your questions. Um, so, hey, London. Okay. Um, but, Robert, you can always call in on Friday. If you want to call in and talk to me, we can do that on Friday. Otherwise, um, go ahead and put it in the chat. Um, okay. Group socialization. Yes, that's exactly right, Robert. Group socialization is a fundamental part of humanity. That is absolutely true. Um, how difficult would it be? Okay, here we go. The Gruns has a question. Uh, how difficult would it be for a newbie in the Sea Org to get to a senior executive position like Mike Rinder or Marty Rathbun? 
Um, it, it's impossible for a newbie to get to that level. You have to put in the work. In order to get cleared to go to int management, when I was in the Sea Org, and this was years ago, but it's still probably still legit, in order to go up lines, as the, is what they call it, when you're, when you're at the level of the pack base, um, you've come into Scientology, you've come into the Sea Org, you did your EPF, you're a new green recruit. Maybe you've been in Scientology for years, maybe you've only just gotten into Scientology. Either way, you're a new Sea Org recruit. You get put through the EPF, then you get put on a lower level post. Um, odds are you're not jumping right into becoming a, you know, a captain of an organization or a senior executive. You're going to be put on a lower level post and you're going to be made to work and get a production record. Can you produce? Can you produce consistently? Can you get statistics to go up, up, up? Can you get along with the group? Do you play well with others? All that kind of stuff. Do you enforce ethics and discipline? Do you toe the line? Do you stay on schedule? All of these things are, are monitored. And, um, and if you have reports written on you that you're slack or off schedule or you're back flashy, you know, you, people give you orders and you give them reasons why you can't do it. Nobody's interested in that. So you have to toe the line, be a good, productive Sea Org member. And if you can do that and produce stellar statistics and do that over time and show that you're a leader type person, a real go-getter, then you'll be uh, earmarked for promotion. And they'll start examining your life and history in much more detail. They'll get into your life history. Remember, in the Sea Org, you have to fill out a life history with intimate details of every aspect of your life. Uh, sexual history, uh, illnesses, any um, uh, physical disability, any, any kind of physicality, any kind of issues of any kind, jobs you've had, all the friends you've had, all this stuff is in your life history. They're most specifically interested in your sexual history. They want to make sure you haven't been up to anything nasty or out to D, as they call it in the Sea Org. Um, and so um, if you jump through all the hoops and pass all the requis you know, requirements and don't get in trouble, then um, you can be promoted up to int management after you've had at least a year, preferably two, of good solid production. That's what gets you up, promoted up the lines. And uh, you have to go through a gauntlet of security checks as well because they don't let just anybody work at Gold or Uplines or anywhere near David Miscavige. You have to get clearance for that. So, um, so that's what that's all about as far as getting on up the line to become a senior executive. And you would need to put in, I mean, in order to get up to, you know, to Mike or Marty's level where you're actually in Miscavige's inner circle – you're probably going to need to have been in the Sea Org for at least three or four years, right? And that would be pretty quick to arrive in that inner circle. It's not so much the time you've been involved, though, as it is the dedication, devotion, uh, willingness to do whatever it takes, right? Uh, crawling all over, clawing your way to the top is, a, is probably a good way of putting it when it comes to actually getting up to the top, top, top. Um, but that's what I can say about that. You know, I didn't do any of that stuff myself. I just observed it from the side or from the bottom. So that's my, that's my knowledge on that one. Okay, Robert, you're asking, is there anywhere uh, where Scientology's Freedom Magazine is available online? You might check um, with the church, on the Scientology.org website because there are links to uh, Freedom and CCHR and 
um, uh, way to happiness. You know, all the affiliate links for Scientology, all their front groups are at the Scientology.org website. And you might find an OSA link, not the not to the Office of Special Affairs, but to Freedom Magazine. Otherwise, um, I don't know. I don't know where I would go looking. I'd just Google. I would just Google Freedom Magazine and start seeing what I could find. You might find old copies uploaded uh, maybe on Xenu.net or on various sites where Scientology materials are are located for download. Um, anyway, Robert, yeah, if you call, go ahead and call in with your theory. I'd love to, uh, love to hear what you have to say on Friday when we do the call-in show. Uh, if you don't want to put the, this is pretty much just for questions in the comments section. So, uh, if you have questions for me, go ahead and leave them in the comments section. And if you put the, um, uh, the at Chris Shelton there, then I get a little highlight so I can see you're asking me a question rather than just commenting on what we're, what we're talking about here. All right. Um, hey, Steve. And hey, hun. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, oh, Stuart Gorman asks, I know questions are often repeated in an auditing session, which would be pretty annoying, but are the same questions asked across sessions? Do those questions would get stuck in your head for years? Um, uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Scientology auditing, all, it, a lot of Scientology auditing is repetitive processing, okay? It's taking a question or a series of questions and asking them over and over and over and over and over again. This is trance-inducing. It's, it's hypnotic on purpose, um, and it is, um, uh, gets you into some pretty weird head spaces, like really weird. You can go unconscious. You can really get knocked out in the middle of an auditing session. It's it's pretty bizarre what happens. And the repetitive process is where the auditor is required to keep asking you the same question over and over and over again. So for example, um, a question and assist that is done, it, let's say you had a sore throat. You could get a repetitive assist question such as, from where could you communicate to a throat? That could be a question that could be asked of you. From where could you communicate to a throat? Well, you could communicate to a throat. And, you know, you answer the question from wherever. Well, I could communicate to a throat uh, from my vocal cords. Okay, great. From where could you communicate to a throat? Uh, from the uh, uh, end of a spoon. You, know, you could shove a spoon down your throat. Okay, great. From where could you communicate to a throat? And you'll just keep that the auditor will just keep asking you this question. And the idea is to restimulate you. Okay, what Hubbard is intending to do, or what he says he's intending to do, what he's intending to do is hypnotize you. But what he says he's intending to do is restimulate past experiences and traumas you've had connected with the throat and injury or harm or or pain in the throat through this question of communication with a throat. And so and this is just one of, of of many 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 different questions that can be asked, okay? I'm just I just pulled this out one out of out of wherever. Um so you restimulate the earlier traumas, you get the person thinking about earlier times they've been hurt, injured, accidents, whatever. And you run them out right, by, by exposure to those past traumas and 
thinking about them and talking about them, it's supposed to relieve a whole bunch of mental electrical charge that Hubbard said is connected with the mental image pictures you carry around with you of these traumatic episodes. Okay, that's what that's all about. It's ridiculous. It doesn't work. We already know it doesn't work. Uh, this is not a way to relieve trauma in a consistent, uniform fashion with people. But that's what Hubbard said. So that's what that's all about. And if you don't finish a process, to answer your question, Stuart, in a single auditing session, you get to a what's called a flat point. You get to a part where, okay, at least we can take a break and end off the session for the day. And you can go home, go back to work, carry on. You're not, you know, you don't walk out of the session all... You get to some part where at least you're kind of, you know, in present time and smiling a little bit or something, and they end the session, and then you come back tomorrow or the next day or whenever you're scheduled to go in for your next session, and they pick right back up on that process and run it again and repetitively ask you that question over and over and over again until you uh, come to a, a floating needle on the e-meter a release of mental mass, a, 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 your very good indicators, you're happy, you're smiling, you're cheerful, and you have had a cognition. You have had some re a realization about life and livingness. Those are the four things that have to happen for you to end off on that process. And until you have those four things happen, you ain't done with the process. So the process might run for quite a while. Or it might go really short. It depends. You know, these repetitive processes are weird, but that's generally how a Scientology auditing process is run repetitively like that. And yes, it does create its own trauma. Absolutely, it does, as well as its own uh, levels of hypnotic trance. And uh, with that, you can engage in, um, even, even unwittingly, you can engage in uh, post-hypnotic suggestions. Yes. Okay. Um, Robert says, I can't remember which ex-member wrote about it, but they mentioned they qualified for the Commodore's Messenger Org because they were too young to have any crimes, including sex. Correct. One of the things that they go in on on that whole life history thing and on your qualifications is any kind of weird sex stuff. They are really crazy about that. So that's why most of the Commodore's Messenger Org staff are kids. It's because they haven't had any sex or life experience in that direction yet. It's weird. It's a weird obsession that, that, that the Sea Org has with sex. It really is. They're, they're quite nuts about it. And that comes straight from, um, that comes straight from uh, Miscavige. Miscavige is uh, big on that. Um. Yeah, Robert, that's exactly what it means, is that most of CMO is young people. Or people who were in originally <laughs> for quite a while, there were some old folks around. Um, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. And realize also that the thing about the qualifications is completely arbitrary. If, if Miscavige likes someone or if some other senior executive is really into, you know, oh, this new person is so great, or this person pulled off this amazing project, we need to pull them up. You can bypass the lines a little bit, and you can get, you know, um, people just jumping the the uh, line a little bit. 
um, in getting promoted too, right? You can pull off some early miracle stuff and get recognized and get promoted that way. But generally speaking, they're still going to run you through the whole security checking gauntlet and all of that. So it's a it's just a weird, nutty, culty thing. You know, it's, it's life in the Sea Org. It used to, it's funny talking about it now. I'm sort of like, just like, God, these people are so nuts. It used to be, <laughs> I really used to be able to understand and think with this stuff a little better. Like, oh, no, it kind of made sense because of blah, blah, blah. Now I look at it and I'm like, no, it doesn't make sense. It's just stupid. All right. Anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not about getting sex partners, Syrax. Uh, um for sure, it's not about uh, Miscavige looking for people to, to to screw around with or have sex with or something. Scientology is really interesting um, in that there have been plenty of sex crimes committed by people who are, you know, not good people uh, in the Sea Org over the years. But dogmatically, right, in terms of how the organization, in terms of the leadership, in terms of the rule set, it's all pretty anti-sex, uh, and it's really not a kind of, I mean, unless Miscavige, excuse me, is pulling off like, you know, secret orgies every other night or something and nobody's ever reported on this. We have no evidence or indication at all that Miscavige is, it, 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 he seems asexual, if anything. It's, it doesn't seem like he's really very uh, interested in sex in really much of any way at all, except to deride it. And he's fascinated by other people's sex lives. So maybe he's not asexual. Maybe he's just really closeted or maybe he's just very, very repressed and he just won't uh, ever go there. And so he just kind of... Uh, lives vicariously sexually through other people's sexual exploits. I don't know, but he's really he's really obsessed with other people's sex lives. So, um, but not in having his own weird sex. That's what I'm kind of trying to say there. It's it's a weird thing. Um, okay, yeah, easy pray for narcissists. That's true. Um, okay. Oh, Jonathan Perry, why does a Thetan require a body at all? That's a great question. Um, because it has an interesting answer in the Scientology mindset. The reason that we are all stuck here with bodies playing this game of let's have a body and let's have a life and let's grow the body, let's live the body, let's have the body die, and then let's go get another body and carry on all over again. And let's and by the way, just for real fun, just to really spice it up, let's forget everything every time our body dies so that when we start with a new fresh body, we have no memory of what came before and it's a whole new fresh experience, right? Why would we do that? Why is that happening? Well, the reason that Hubbard said that's ultimately happening is because we have been fooled. We have been deceived and entrapped in this situation. We originally, back in the day, way, way, way back, trillions and trillions of years ago, were free Thetans. We were free beings. We could travel the universe. We could create our own universe. We were, uh, we were gods. We, were, we, we had uh, the ultimate power of life and creation. And the physical world, this whole manifested world that is the physical universe, is something we are just simply creating, all of us together. Um, but it, having forgotten about that, trillions of years ago, right? We, hey, let's play a game. And then we forgot we were playing. And we have victimized each other back and forth over and over again, so many times over so many millennia 
that we've really sunk ourselves into this and we now believe that we are bodies. Uh, these meat bodies that we carry around with us, as Hubbard likes to call them, is it's all just this big illusion, but we're stuck to it. We're trapped because of our crimes, our overts, our sins, and um, and our you know, and having been victimized. It goes both ways. We've been victimized, and we victimized others. Um, and, and we've done this over and over and over and over and over again. And so we're caught trapped in this cycle and we can't break out. And if you forget your true nature, if you forget what you really are and who you really are and where you've really been and what you've been about, then if you have no memory of it, no ability to do anything about it, then you're stuck. And that's where Hubbard says we are. And, um, and so you have no choice in the matter. You are compelled to go get another body when your body dies. You've got implants and commands and, you know, um, th this kind of stuff that you carry around with you. And so you are, you are trapped on this prison planet that is Earth. And, uh, and that's, that's the answer to the question from a Scientology point of view. You can, you know, feel free to ask me for any other details on that. But that's, that's basically how it works. Um, yeah, Robert. Uh, okay, you're getting back to Miscavige and sex. Is he obsessed with how wrong homosexuality is? That is a sign of a closeted dude in my life experience. Possibly. You know, he's obsessed with sex, period. And he definitely seems to uh, deride and ridicule homosexual sex. So it's entirely possible that he's got, you know, some kind of closeted stuff going on. I'm pretty sure a psycho uh, an analytic sort of, an, you know, review or, or breakdown of Miscavige would just go on and on and on and on. There is probably just volumes of stuff to take apart with that guy. I, you know, I, I'm not going to conjecture a whole lot more on his uh, sexual proclivities, but it is just very interesting that the man is so obsessed with other people's sex lives. That much we can say for sure. Why? You know, who knows? Uh, is he nutty? Yeah, of course he is. He's David Miscavige. Um, yeah, does he? Okay, Steve Wood, does David Miscavige have a partner these days now that his wife is out of the picture? I've heard that his communicator, Lou, might be in a relationship with him. Have you heard this? Yes, I have heard that. I've heard that since the day I got out of Scientology. It's very old rumor. Uh, Lou Stukenbrock is the name. I think she's got a new name now. She was married to a guy named uh, Uwe Stukenbrock, who I was on the RPF with. He died. He had MS, and he died on the RPF. Uh, he was relegated there. He just got kicked off there, and uh, that's where he died. And so his ex-wife, Lou, is David Miscavige's communicator, or at least was, as long as, as far as far as we know, she still is. And there have been rumors about some kind of romantic entanglement, but they're just rumors. Nobody knows for sure. And that's pretty much all the data we've got on that. Um, okay, Dorte, I have a weird question. What happens to the body of a member of the Sea Org when the member has passed away? Do they get buried or do the remains get discarded by the mortician? Um, they have funerals. The family decides, I think, for the most part. Uh, I've seen cremation. I've seen burial. Um, I think for the most, I think mostly I've seen cremation, but it's not like there's a, a, a ritual or um, some sort of, you know, set in set of instructions for what happens to Sea Org members when they die. It's pretty much left up to the person and the family and their wishes. 
Uh, okay. Say so sex doesn't anyone's kind of abuse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hubbard, yeah, you're talking about LRH in terms of the asexual not abusing his followers. Same, actually, same thing. Hubbard, no evidence that he that in his later years he was sexually abusing followers. However, we do know for a fact that the guy was a serial um, philanderer and uh, cheater in his earlier days and in the early days of Dianetics in the 1950s, all bets are off. The guy was probably having whatever sex he wanted with whoever he wanted. Um, come the 1960s, 70s is when we see that sort of start narrowing and Hubbard starts getting a little nutty, like really seriously mentally. You start wondering. I, 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 I call it in the 60s. That's when I think he went nuts. I think other people say the 70s when it was obvious and when he had, you know, this um, cysts on his head and brain issues and a stroke and broke his, you know, broke body parts, motorcycle accident, all kinds of stuff happened to him. But, um, but I, I think he's really, really started losing it mentally in the sixties. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that relates to the asexualness or not, but that's, that's how I see it. Um, Oh, Hey, what an interesting question. Christopher Martin asks, as a skeptic and critical thinker, I'm interested to hear your take on what you think is going on with all those reports of UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. Yeah, isn't that interesting stuff? One second, let me, uh, one second. I'm not sure what to think. I have seen critics break this stuff down very thoroughly and um, indicate that there are excuse me, phenomena of the camera and other phenomena that seem to indicate that it's not quite necessarily as spectacular and physics-defying phenomena on camera as has been reported. So maybe it's not quite all that. Then again, maybe it is. I haven't really dived into it enough because I haven't had the time or interest. But I am fascinated by the possibility of it. And so when you present me with visual evidence, you know, there's a number of different videos that show interesting stuff. And I've said that I believe that, uh, you know, airplane fighter pilots are are good observers. I think that they are trained observers and I and I take what they have to say with um you know with with uh, seriousness i i consider that their that their observations are good trained observations when it comes to what they're talking about about aerial phenomena that they track and stuff like that that all being said they're not perfect and they can mess up and in the heat of the moment anybody can misperceive or or miss on something or call something for one thing when it's really another thing so so it's it's good to have the pilots and their observations, but it's also good to have later, you know, uh, analysis from people on the ground or or people who can analyze the video and see things the pilots couldn't see in the moment. And so far, we haven't seen, it hasn't really seemed that we've got any kind of real gotchas there. It doesn't seem like there's any kind of like, oh my God, this is it. It's the final proof. We've, we, this is aliens, right? It could, there are so many explanations for, um, what do you call unidentified aerial phenomena, right? Just because it's unidentified doesn't mean it's aliens. It could be Smurfs. It could be Russians. It could be Chinese. It could be the Cubans. It could be anything, right? It could be us. It could be the Canadians. Don't discount the Canadians. 
They're sneaky, those guys. Anyway. Uh, so that's uh, so basically what I'm saying is I haven't really come to any conclusions on it one way or the other. I haven't let myself. I just kind of watch what's occurring with interest and with a certain amount of giddiness because I do want to believe. And when it comes to aliens and alien life, I do believe. I do believe that mathematically speaking, the, prob the possibility of there being life elsewhere in this universe is absolutely, I, I, I think it's a certainty. But um, without any evidence or proof of that, I know I can't really back that up. I just say that's my that's my hope. That's my desire. I want to believe, and uh, but I'm not going to be so um, so wanting to believe that I'm going to let my brains leak out on that one. I just uh, I track the phenomena. I watch it and I watch it with interest. But I do pay attention to what the skeptics say, and I go, okay. Maybe that was an artifact. Maybe that was just a, you know, a, a video, uh, you know, whatever glitch. And, uh, and maybe that thing really didn't defy physics the way that they're reporting it did. You know, I'll let those guys sort it out. It's not my, not my thing. Um, yeah, I'll say. You Canadians, man, I gotta, gotta watch you guys. Okay, uh, cool. All right. Um, oh, yeah, we will be moving apartments soon. In fact, um, we have secured uh, a house rental. So we're actually quite excited about that. So that'll be uh, happening in the next couple months. Okay. Um, cool, Dorte. Uh, and oh, Henny. Okay. I heard about guns being stored within Scientology. Any truth to this? Yes. Uh, Scientology security at Pack Base and at Gold have verified reports of um, of firearms. They have guns on property, absolutely. And the security guys are trained to use them. Yeah, definitely. And I'm pretty sure the same would, it would be the case at Flag. Excuse me, in Clearwater. Absolutely, no question about it. They're not going to mess around with that stuff. Um, when Miscavige is around, if the base needs to be um, secured, you know, when the riots were happening back in, what was that, 92, the L.A. riots, uh, the firearms came out, uh, you know, with in, in security's hands. It's not it's not a free-for-all. Some Sea Org members do have their own guns, and they are required, I believe, by base policy to keep them uh, locked up in security so they have access to them when they want them. Uh, if they have a day off or something, but you can't just wander down at 10 o'clock at night and go, give me my gun. doesn't quite work that way. Um, so they do regulate it, but um, that's what, that was my experience with gun ownership. Now, it doesn't, it's not, you could potentially get away with having a gun, keeping it in your dorm, keeping it in your room, in a lockbox or stored away somewhere where security doesn't find out about it. But remember, security comes around into people's dorms and in their rooms all the time when the Sea Org members are not there and just rifles through their stuff. I've, I saw it happen over and over and over again. So you do not have any personal safety or security or sense of security uh, as a Sea Org member, privacy. There is none of that. And you have no right to that as a Sea Org member. That's, that's, that's definitely a given. Oh, yes, I was. I knew this was going to come up sooner than later. Okay, Vernon. Hi, Chris. Have you seen Lloyd Evans' latest update on his YouTube? He is going through some personal issues with his family. Yes, he is. And that is Lloyd's issue. That is his personal problem. He's got um, some exposure of some um, 
sexual proclivities, I guess you could say, that he has had, and he has um, sort of owned up to that, but in such a way that it kind of comes across as, fuck all of you guys, it's my business, not yours, and how dare this come out. And fair enough, I get that, I totally do, you know, having a personal life myself and not wanting it, you know, all exposed to everything. I'm pretty open with you guys about pretty much everything. Um, but not everything. You guys don't know everything about me, and you don't need to know everything about Lloyd either. As far as this controversy, though, uh, goes, I just think it's pretty unfortunate because I hate it when I see, um, you know, ex-member activists or or people who do what we do, you know, lambasted in a public forum. It's, it's never pleasant or fun, and I don't know that What's been exposed is particularly anybody's business. There is no evidence that I've seen yet of an actual crime committed or anything like that. With Lloyd, apparently he was taking, you know, engaged in sexual tourism in the Philippines or something like that. And um, so there's this insinuation or inference that he must have been having sex with minors. He, he absolutely denies that that's the, the, the case according to the statement that I read from, uh, that he posted. And, um, and that's the situation with him. Now, he and I have not really been in touch in a very, very long time. He, Lloyd, sort of decided on his own bat that he did not want to do three apostates episodes anymore with me and Jonathan Streeter because he disagreed with our stance on the Black Lives Matter organization. And, um, and I had things to say about BLM uh, last year or year and a half, two years ago, whatever it was. And Lloyd didn't like what I had to say about that. And so he decided that he didn't want to make content with us anymore. So that way, way, way preceded uh, this whole blow up. And, um, and as far as, you know, I, I don't know. I, I hope that Lloyd navigates this well and then he gets through it and uh, comes out the other side and is still able to do good work. Because he does good work. As far as his exposure of JW abuses, as far as I can tell, he's done really good work on that. So have a lot of other people, by the way. I'm not, you know, I don't have favorites in that game. I think all of us have something to contribute and something to say, just like in the ex-Scientology world. There's a whole bunch of people who have said a whole bunch of good stuff. I'm just one of many voices, right? And so is Lloyd. So I don't think that, you know, he's... The, 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 you know, the, the greatest XJW critic ever or anything like that. Uh, I just think he's a good guy and he's put out some good work. And, um, and in fact, he's done some championship work. I mean, he was, you know, he was involved with Leah on the Scientology and the Aftermath episode about the, X, about the JWs and that whole thing. So, so good work there. As far as the rest of it goes, that's, that's my take on, on that so far. Um, Okay, looking here, I think Canada's getting its own. What would be the point of? Oh, no, Robert. Uh, Robert asks. He says here. I think. <clears throat> excuse me. I think Canada is getting its own continental management office. What would the point of building a third continental layer of management when it's supposed to be a money scam? Robert, there has been a CLO, a management unit, in Canada for decades. They, they have had their own management uh, unit for a very, very long time. That's not a new thing. Canada is one of the, I think, seven or eight different continental zones that Scientology is divided up 
the world into. There's Canada, West U.S., East U.S., Latin America, Australia, New Zealand, Oceania, uh, ANZO, um, uh, EU, and Asia, and Italy. Italy is its own thing because there's so much Scientology in Italy. And then Africa. So what is that, 9, 10, something like that? Anyway, those are the geographic zones. Each one of them has their own continental management office, has been that way for a very, very long time. Since the 1970s, I think, is when all that was set up. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, Jonathan, I know you keep pestering me about this Dave Chappelle thing. I really need you to calm down about that. Okay, please. I, I'm, I'm a really busy person, and you email me a lot. So I'm publicly asking you to please bring it down a little bit. Okay, I, I will definitely look at that email. All right. Um, now, let's see. Okay, we got caught up. Okay, so um oh my god vernon that would be fascinating do a live podcast with john atek at his house that's an interesting idea i will have to ask him about that <laughs> thank you john <laughs> i will definitely respond to your emails i answer all my emails guys i really do but it does take me a little while sometimes because i get real busy but I really, 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 really try to answer every single email that comes my way. But you got to give me some time. Okay. Um, so I can't believe I've actually caught up with the questions on a live Q&A. That never happens. <laughs> I, have, I did have a couple questions pulled up from my queue in case I needed them. Um, so... So, uh, da, 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 da. oh, Cyrix, yeah, sorry, I should have, I should have uh, clarified that. So, uh, thank you for asking. Cyrix asks, uh, what was the argument with Lloyd about BLM? Um, my argument with BLM, with the BLM Black Lives Matter organization, not the movement, was um, there, there were just indications of culty, coercive control kind of stuff, and. Um, some uh, the organizers of the Black Lives Matter organization, the people who actually put that organization together after uh, the Trayvon Martin shooting, um, and then carried forward with manifestos and work to um, sort of create this sort of black culture in the United States under the BLM banner had some disturbing kind of revolutionary, you know, really kind of heavy left-wing Marxist stuff that I really, really, really took exception to. And there were some points that they had written up in some manifestos that had been published prior to the BLM demonstrations of a couple of years ago. Uh, this stuff was up on their website. And then they kind of, you know, cleaned it up a little bit, but it was still sort of there and there were shades of it. And it was, it just wasn't something that I thought was... Um, presenting itself as to what it was really trying to do. I thought that there was some anti-government, anti-society uh, sort of stuff there that disturbed me. And so I wanted to talk about that. And um, in the middle of the riots and the demonstrations and the George Floyd shooting and stuff, probably not the best time to talk about that stuff, if I'm being honest, but that was what was on my mind. 
And I was looking at this behavior and I was looking at these demonstrations and I was looking at some of the violence connected with it. And I thought, well, this is a little unsavory. I, 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 don't, I don't want it like that. I don't want that. And so I started, you know, saying something about it, and, and then it got interpreted by Lloyd as racist, which it wasn't. It had nothing to do with race. had nothing to do with that at all. And um, yet that was kind of how it got framed, and so it deteriorated pretty quickly. Lloyd really did not even want to really have a conversation about it, and I was pretty disappointed in that. Um, so that's, that was where that came from uh, as far as my, my argument on that. So good times. I also have had quite a few things to say about critical race theory, which I still stand by, even though um, I had a, um, what was his name? I forgot that guy's name. Anyway, I had a, <clears throat> we did a couple podcasts on critical race theory. And um, I, I, you know, I don't like it. I don't think critical race theory is good philosophy. I don't think it's good law. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, 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 you know, but it's complicated. It's super fucking complicated to talk about. And everybody seems to be getting it a bit wrong um, in terms of all the arguments that have been flying around about it on social media for the last couple of years. Yeah, James Lindsay, that's the guy's name. So um, so that's why I was like, you know, uh, mm, uh, you know, I don't want to get into that critical race theory stuff, too. So uh, Anyway, yeah, not good. Not a not a good time. It was a very very bad time on a number of counts on that. And uh, anyway, so that's how Lloyd and I um, kind of had our falling out. And uh, I did. I did want to say this. I forgot about this. Um, Lloyd and I saw each other at the Faithless Forum a few months ago down in Austin. I went there, and I was just I was just an audience member. I didn't speak. And um, but Lloyd was there and he was a speaker anyway. So he and I saw each other. We did shake hands. We did smile. But um, but, you know, that we didn't really connect or reconnect. And uh, I guess he's got other things on his mind now. Yes, CRT was an old computer screen. That's right. That's 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 my that's my preferred CRT. All right. Um, so that is my answer on that. And uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so left in the show. So I'm going to pull up this um, question that somebody asked me. This is, what, this is from one of my Patreon supporters. They said, why did LRH design Scientology in such a way that you don't figure out about OT3, the whole Xenu thing, until you're so far in? Did he add and tack these beliefs on later, and why do they seem so out of place with the rest of Scientology? Did he create them when he was going nuts, and did he actually believe it? Mm. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh... <sighs> OT3, the Xenu story, does sort of come out of nowhere uh, in 1967. Hubbard kind of came up with this out of some sort of fever dream that he had that some believe is inspired by drugs. And that's a controversial point, but possibly, probably, Hubbard was definitely somebody who uh, engaged in biochemical enhancement. We'll put it that way. And um, so it's entirely possible that this is all just some drug fever dream that he had about Xenu and intergalactic genocide and, you know, implants and all of that. The Xenu story is sort of an amalgamation of a lot of weird stuff that Hubbard had already put together 
the idea of entities or spirits or body thetans had, had already been around in Scientology since 1952, although they weren't called body thetans, but the idea of entities or individual separate uh, life units, you could say, that live on you or in you or around you or in your body is an old idea in Scientology. That goes back to the, the almost to the beginning. Um, but the idea of uh, also the idea of the Markabian Confederacy of having space, you know, um, what they call it? space opera, uh, having like stuff going on in space, interstellar conflict, Star Wars kind of stories. That was also already heavily ingrained in Scientology, again, from the early 1950s. Um, and the idea of implants, of invader forces, of, um, of uh, Earth being a prison planet, of, of there being, um, you know, wholesale implanting or brainwashing of, of, of spirits, of, of people here. That was already all existed in Scientology before Hubbard came up with Xenu. So when Xenu popped out in 1967, it was only to a select number of Scientologists who Hubbard had deemed were ready for it. So not all of Scientology got that right away. And to this day, only about 5% of Scientologists actually make it to the level of Xenu. So it is a sudden kind of shift onto dealing with body thetans, and you do deal with body thetans from OT3 four, five, six, seven, right? So, so it's a big chunk of Scientology is, is dealing with this stuff. Um, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It was built on earlier ideas that Hubbard had sort of put together. And um, that's what I can say in terms of answering that question right away about that. Out damn Thetans. That's exactly right. Uh, okay, let's see here. Robert asks, what would LRH think about modern Star Wars? Would he prefer the pre-Disney original material or the Disney abomination? <laughs> uh, I think Hubbard, Hubbard, we already know that Hubbard loved Star Wars and the effect that it had on society. And that's why Hubbard wrote Revolt in the Stars, which was that I, I earlier had called it a screenplay. It's not a screenplay. It's more of a, I guess you'd call it a treatment or a story or something. It's really written as a short story, but it's, um, or a novella, I guess you could say. It's sort of one of those weird length things. It's an awful story. But that story was written in response to the popularity of Star Wars. And Hubbard was all about space opera. And he thought that this would be a great way to get people on board with Scientology is to tell the Scientology Star Wars story. And that's the revolt in the stars, which is based on the Xenu story. The only thing that's different about Revolt in the Stars is it doesn't mention anything about spirits or thetans or, or implants or any of that. So you have the whole catastrophe and the genocide, but you don't have all the brainwashing and implanting and, and, and spiritual aspects of it. That was all kind of removed from the story. As far as what he would think of the Disney abomination, I don't know. I, you know, Hubbard... Hubbard was not a great storyteller. I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but his stories kind of suck. So, you know, he'd probably he'd probably think they were great. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was an ELO fan. Um, 
Uh, oh, bud, 123. Yes, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Um, yes, that screen treatment of Revolt in the Stars is absolutely just beautiful writing, isn't it? Oh, my God. He's Oh, if you guys haven't seen it, you really should download it. It's available all over the place on the Internet. I'm sure you can find it at Xenu.net. And if you don't have, if you got, a, you know, an hour or two to kill, you will be amazed at how bad it is. It's kind of shocking. Like, you, you can't really believe that somebody who made good money as a professional writer, this was their job. This is how they made a living. They are published. Their name is a byline on hundreds of stories. You cannot believe that somebody with that pedigree wrote that pile of shit that is Revolt in the Stars. It is shockingly horrible. I mean, really bad. So if I haven't oversold it already, <laughs> you guys really, really need to check it out. All right. So uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, it only takes a few minutes to read. That's right. Okay. All right, good. So let's go ahead and wrap up with this one. Um, yeah, that Battlefield Earth, that John Travolta movie, Shimoda. Oh, got a whole review of that piece of pile of dung. All right, the Gruns asks, um, I'm fascinated with the secret vaults in California and New Mexico. What do you know about them? We know a lot, a lot, way more than I can tell you here. Uh, there's whole podcasts that I have done. If you look up, if you want to Google my Sensibly Speaking podcast with Dylan Gill, uh, I think we did two of them, and we talk extensively for hours about those vaults in California and New Mexico, uh, the attempted one they tried to build in Wyoming that got aborted. Um, maybe they're trying to build some others we don't even know about right now, but we go into grim detail about what's in them, how it's all put together, what the purpose of it is, what Hubbard was thinking when he, when he designed that whole project. So, um, so I'm just going to plug that podcast because that's really the, the, the full answer. What you're looking for is in those. Those vaults are, uh, just to give you a real quick answer, the vaults are, um, are multi-million dollar facilities that the Church of Scientology has invested millions of dollars in to create the most um, uh, top-of-the-line, bleeding-edge archival technology to store L. Ron Hubbard's spoken and written words forever. So if an atomic war were to happen, nuclear war were to occur, Hubbard's materials would survive. And we could have Scientology a thousand years from now because the survivors of the war would dig these vaults up, find all this treasure of L. Ron Hubbard's materials, and bring it to the world. And that's how Scientology is going to survive a nuclear conflict. And that's basically, in a nutshell, what those vaults are all about. And like I said in the podcast, we go into intense detail about all of that. Um. No, on Martin, on your question on the floating needle, um, you have actually asked me a question, Martin, that I am still trying to get the answer to, which is what exactly is a floating needle indicating on an e-meter? 
I have ideas. I have uh, I have some uh, some ideas about what that's about, and it has to do with the um, nervous system and with uh, electrical resistance to this, you know, on your skin and stuff. And it has to do with with um, it does have to do with emotional state. Um, but I haven't quite got an explanation that really does it for me yet. And that's why I don't have an answer to your question yet. Sometimes people ask me questions that I don't know the answer to, and I sit on it until I get it. And on this particular one, this is a question that has plagued me on this e-meter thing for years now. And it's the last bit that I need to figure out in order to complete that project, uh, the, the script for that project and get it done. So um, that'll, all get being, that'll all be reviewed in the coming, in the next couple months um, as I get that project done. And I do get an answer to that question because I want an answer to it. And then I will um, finish that whole thing. All right, so I think we are um, wrapping up here. Oh, good. I'm really glad you liked that podcast yesterday. Good. Thank you. Um, yeah, those emotional needs things really opened my eyes, too. When Rachel and I were talking, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, really important stuff. Yes, John McWhorter, that's the guy. That guy is, um, yes, those are a lot clearer and a lot simpler than James Lindsay. I really, really, really would love to get John McWhorter on my show, but I don't know that he will uh, give me the time of day. But I would love to talk with him. He's, uh, he is a very, very, very clear speaker on the subject of um, critical race theory and, its, and, and the problems with it. Um, okay. Um, Yeah, that circle and triangle thing. It's actually diamonds. It's a couple of uh, circles with some diamonds in them. And those are, I, you know, I don't know, Jonathan. I mean, quite honestly, because Hubbard was insane. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what this dude was thinking, putting symbols on a ground that you could only see from the sky, like the Nazca lines. I, you know, it's nutty. It's crazy. Hubbard was insane. So... Not everything's going to have a rational explanation, you know? It's so funny, this guy, Hubbard. I mean, just you try to figure this guy out. You try to figure him out. You try to figure him out. And then you realize some things about him, they just don't make sense. <laughs> and I don't mean that in some blow-off way. I'm trying to say some things about this guy and what he did, I don't know that we're ever going to have sensible answers for. You know, it's that. It's just that nutty. All right. Um, yeah, that's a good question, Xion. Why do some people have such a button on autonomy and others don't have a problem with agreeing with mandates? It, you know, it is a funny thing. Autonomy, uh, uh, the, 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 the ability to have a choice. I believe it comes out of trauma. I believe it's trauma infor uh, enforced. I think that people who are, uh, you know, going to kill themselves because they're going to have a choice and what they're going to do, and there's nothing you're going to say about that, and I'm going to have my choices, even if my choice is to die in order to be right about my choices. I think that level of, of irrationality, of an inability to change one's mind or examine facts and figures and look at, you know, what one should do, I think that comes out of trauma. And I think that um, 
uh, you're going to find, you know, childhood or early life uh, instances of stuff. And I'm not talking about engrams. I don't mean like deep subliminal stuff. I just mean you're going to find trauma, you know, and you're going to find people who have had their choices taken away from them forcefully, abusively. I think you're going to find people who have felt that they have been um, or who have honestly been victimized over and over and over again and so they will fight for any choice they can make because it's mine god damn it you know kind of thing i th i think that's where that kind of comes out of you also have other explanations too it's not all trauma but i think trauma is a big 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 thing there all right um yeah yeah uh, that's that's good stuff i saw john mcwhorter bud on um andrew yang's podcast that's where I thought he did a, a just a brilliant job. If you guys want to check that out, Andrew Yang has a podcast where he interviewed John McWhorter, and that that gives the whole breakdown on CRT quite quite well. All right, um, yeah, insanity is a little inexplicable. Uh, so, yeah, exactly, Shimoda, good stuff. Okay, guys, let's go ahead and wrap up because I we've we've done a, a, our hour here, and I hope that these were decent answers to your questions, guys. I always do my best. Um, we did cover seem to cover a lot of territory here, so I hope this was a decent show for you all. Thank you very much for coming around and watching, and um, and yes, thanks, guys. You're awesome. And I got some work I got to go do. <laughs> okay, so. With that, I will, um, we will wrap it up. Bye, guys.